So what happens when you combine my insane curiosity with some of the world's most interesting people? You end up with incredible conversations full of stories, insights, and the defining moment that made them who they are today. This is The David Spizak Show. Welcome to the David Spizak Show. I am absolutely delighted. First and foremost, I'm, I'm very thankful that you're taking the time to join me and that you're trusting me with your time. I will tell you without any hesitation that you're going to absolutely love that you did. Because the other reason I am very delighted is to have my friend and somebody who I just have massive respect for as a human being, as a leader, and as, a, as one of the great dealers out there in our industry. And that's the one and only Lisa Borchus, who is the dealer principal of the Carter Myers Automotive Group. Lisa, thanks for taking the time to join. David, I'm excited to be here. Our conversations always teach me as much as I can contribute. So uh, thank you. I, I, feel, I feel the same way. And I've got my, I'm, I'm super old school. You know, I'm, I don't know if you know this much about me, but um, I didn't know anybody who had a computer before I did. It was around 1980, 81. Um, and, but even though that is the case, and I am a, a self-professed geek on many levels with tech, look what I have in my hand. A pencil. <laughs> <laughs> I finally moved to a remarkable and that digital tablet, and I absolutely oh, love it. I, I've, I've had one for um, quite a long time. I never run out of paper, um, and and I mean I think this thing is brilliant. Getting David, better I used all to the carry time. around like ten notebooks because I was always you know taking my and then I couldn't find the notes when I needed them. And this thing has just been enlightening. Everywhere I am, I can pull up a note from gosh knows when. It's made me uh, I feel like much smarter. <laughs> yeah, don't you feel like don't you feel like it was the remarkable? Like you might even be able to sit down and pen a book. One of these yeah. days, right? So all our information at our fingertips. It's been it's been remarkable. <laughs> it is remarkable. It's it definitely lives up to its title. So I'm actually going to start there, and I had no plans to. Um, I'm going to start with technology, um, only because technology. You know, I mean, I started in 1981. When did you start in the car business? Technically, when I graduated from college in 1997, that's when I went to work for American Honda Motor Company. Now I worked in the dealership all growing up, but I don't. I can't count those years as really. Okay, but that's that's still uh, fair. Okay, so but you remember even in 1997, I mean, we were greatly devoid of technology. Our te- our main technology was our data management systems, and and when Reynolds and C and ADP back then, uh, CDK, um, right. when when they came out with the first. CRM, that was just like straight up voodoo, right? It's just like, oh my God, now I can keep track of my customers. And, you know, we fast forward today to where we are in 2023. And, and as somebody who incubates technology has created multiple tech platforms, I love the power of tech, but I'm also uh, forever wary and um, just cautious because technology for technology's sake to me uh, is a bit of a challenge. Number two, it has rendered this almost untenable situation as far as I'm concerned with the tech stack, especially with 
companies like Shift uh, Digital. Yeah. Um, can I say that? Um, uh, so, uh, and, and making it nearly impossible for somebody like you to get a cohesive tech stack throughout the organization. And, and three, you know, here, here we go. Uh, every time we turn around, there's something new in, in AI, chat GPT, open AI. You know, we literally went from AI being something that we, we heard about in movies to last November becoming front and center. And I don't know if you heard this, uh, three ex-employees of OpenAI just raised $4 billion from a little company called Amazon. And um, it's, it's unbelievable. So here, OpenAI hasn't even been in the front of people's, you know, the frontal lobe here yeah. for not even a year. And here's an offshoot from them that just raised $4 billion from a company who seemingly like Google and Facebook has more concern about FOMO, not wanting to miss out on AI than actually figuring out what it's going <laughs> to do for us. What so David, I, I think if we, let's boil it down to the car business, right? Most of the people listening uh, are probably in our industry and you just rattled off all of these different areas of technology that have come into our business. And what I think as leaders we have to be doing right now, there's a couple of key things. First, we need to be looking at how much is it costing us to sell a car? Because we now have not only all of these different pieces of the tech stack from DMS to CRM to chats to tools like Auto to now AI tools that are assisting us. We have a lower ratio of sales managers to sales associates than we ever have. We have BDC departments and sometimes an extra manager as a BDC manager. And our sales associates are still averaging 10 to 12 cars a month. So I just kind of quickly on my hands put together, you know, all the different digital retailing tools and whatnot that we have, all of the different support people. We have service to sales, vehicle upgrade people, um, all of these things happening in our dealerships. Exchange, what do they call them at Subaru, our Encore delivery specialist to help people understand the technology in their car. And yet our sales associates are getting paid more per car because grosses are good, still only selling 10 to 12. And yet we've probably quadrupled our cost of all of the different tools and people that it takes to sell a car in today's world. That equation is not going to work going forward. We've been very lucky the last three plus-ish years to have I think the grace in our grosses to allow us to try a different, a lot of different areas of technology, to try different structures in our sales teams. What do we need to properly give the right customer experience, deliver cars at home, meet the expectations of our customer today? But now we've got to dive in and look at all these things that we've tried and say, okay, how much does it really, can it cost us to sell a car in order for our business to be viable into the future? Which of these tools is adding to the customer experience, allowing for the associate experience to be effective, efficient, and not too complex? And ultimately, how does the cost equation work with where we think grosses are going to go? So I think technology is, is fun. It's exciting, but we have allowed it to be too complex, too expensive, and it's, it's not going to allow us to be a viable um, way to buy a vehicle five and 10 years from now if we don't boil this thing down. I think, needless to say, you're you're beyond spot on, and I think that you're actually being kind uh, in 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 one respect, and that is, I don't know of a line item on anybody's PNL 
that has seen more growth or even call it hyper growth over the last 10 or 15 years than that data processing yeah. line, right? Yeah. It has literally exploded from being just the cost of your DMS. Number two, uh, when you always think of uh, anything in life these days, it's always time and money, right? If you're going to build something, it's time and money. If you're going to develop somebody, it's time and money. Well, it's the same thing with technology. There's the money side. That's easily quantifiable. What's not so quantifiable to me is the time. Because in the beginning, when we had that DMS, we had to train our people on how to operate that DMS. How many products are your people now having to be trained on and and continue to learn in order to be able to come close to achieving the level of expectation you had for ROI on those products or even their viability at this point? So I think that's a piece too, don't you? Absolutely. And and you mentioned in your opening about, um, you know, we represent 18 different franchises and each of those OEMs have different requirements for vendors we need to use. And then sometimes almost vendors in between our vendors, like a shift digital, um, what I don't have a solution for. And I'm hoping someone like you can help bring us all to it, to the table to discuss the OEMs obviously care more about making sure that the experience in their particular brand of dealerships is what they want. They don't have to take on the cost of all of these tools, nor do they sit in our seat and see the complexity that our sales teams need to go through. When we talk about uh, you know, a whole different subject of how do we recruit and retain talent, when we make things very complex and have 10 different dashboards that people are plugging into and they don't have a great sense of even where they are in the month, that's going to hurt our ability to recruit great people. So it's more than even just the ROI on the financial statement. There's so many intangibles that come with this complexity. Um, I, I think what people listen to podcasts for are for answers, and I don't have a great answer on how we address this situation with the OEMs. It does mean that us as dealers need to be very engaged in conversations with our OEMs involved in our dealer advisory boards. Uh, we need to be in these conversations and helping them understand why it hurts their brand to continue to require certain tools that may not be the best tools to give the right customer experience and to be able to retain and recruit great people. Um, again, a really remarkably great point. And I, I find it interesting as you're saying that I'm sitting here thinking we're at a point in time to where we have unprecedented technology solutions being created at the same time as the, the, where it's more difficult than ever seemingly to bring people into this business, which is always mind-blowing to me, Liza, because it really is the greatest business in the world, no offense to anybody else, in no matter what you're doing. But this business has a larger imprint on the United States economy than pretty much any other industry. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, I just can't name another industry where you can jump in with no pun intended or pun intended, no money down. You could have no college education. You could have, frankly, no high school degree. And you could walk into this business day one and make it a, a decent wage. And within two years, have the potential of making six figures. Where else can you do that? And five or 10 years later, 10 years later, prospectively be a dealer, right? To where you have a, a, a dealership. And there's so many yeah. of those stories out there, but isn't this interesting? It's 
just as challenging or more so to find people. We are being overloaded with tech, which is supposed to make everything easier. And yet, as you said, very, very perfectly, um, it's, it's maybe individually they do, but when I have to duct tape them together and band-aid them together with eight or 10 or 12 other things, and I have to get my people to log into eight to 15 things every single day, and my salespeople have to engage, or my advisors, four or five different things, it really doesn't come out that way. Now, here's the tough part. You yep. said I don't have answers, and it's going to have to include some type of a partnership, collaborative effort with the OEMs. Well, I think we have to look at each piece of technology or our tech stack as a whole and not only look at it. I think so often we're only looking at it from the customer experience uh, ROI. And we say that this tool is going to solve this problem with our customer experience. But we need to look at, at it just as seriously as to how it's impacting our associate experience. And David, you said that we have you know trouble recruiting. Why? How? Why should we have trouble recruiting great people into this industry? Right? It's the best industry in the world. But if you look at all of the you know best places to work and workplace studies and 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 whatnot, one of the biggest detractors and and why we lose people from this industry is because of work life balance, hours that they're working, and the types of schedules that we have. And really, it's across all departments, not just sales. And so, if we could uh, create a solution or look at each piece of technology that we bring in as to how can this create a great customer experience, but help offset the types of schedules and hours that we require in the retail side of this business. So, and I I don't know what's out there, but if we could look at each piece of technology and say, okay, could this piece of technology help my technician or my sales associate or my service advisor to be able to work a maybe it's a 45-hour work week, or be able to utilize this when they're working from home for a few hours, which right now is very difficult to do on the retail side. How can we look at technology as being able to improve the associate experience from an effectiveness and efficiency standpoint and potentially adjust the types of hours and schedules that we have in our dealerships? That would be a huge win. Um, I don't think that that's how we approach our technology, but if we could maybe shift our mindset, that could be a different way of looking at it. I, I agree with you. I, I would love to serve this up to you, you know, and, and I'm sure this is something that has always resonated with you. Uh, somebody said, God knows who it was, but they're, they're right. ESI equals CSI, right? Anybody who's pursuing client satisfaction, I prefer the term client satisfaction to customer satisfaction, just because the very nature of a customer is to be transactional short-term relationship. And I don't, I don't know any business that honestly wants that. Um, but if ESI, if CSI follows and is in lockstep with ESI, then it would logically go uh, in the same direction that in order to deliver client experience that's frictionless or more frictionless, you have to first achieve that metric or that benchmark for the associates. And yeah. so you have to find technology that is uh, favorable to them that makes their job easier, not harder, that that reduces complexity or friction out of it. And when you when you mention us finding people, if it's so hard to get people in the auto industry, why is it not hard for companies like Tesla and Techion and Rivian and others? So I don't think it's the industry. 
I, I think to your point, as you said, it's the work-life balance. It's the rigid, rigid structure that you have to fit in this box and focusing perhaps on the task and the hours rather than the results and the person. So I, I, you know, speaking my language in that in our new hire orientation, I take our, all of our new hires every month through type of customer experience that we want to see in our dealerships or, or client experience, as you said. And at the end of that piece of it, I asked them, I said, but there's one thing that is the most important part of offering a great client experience. And without it, the rest, everything I just spoke about for 15 minutes won't happen. And every time I ask them, they say, oh, it's it's the greeting. It's the way you answer the phone. It's this, it's smiling when they're within 10 feet of, you know, whatever it might be. I said, no, the number one most important ingredient is that we have to have a great associate experience. Otherwise, you are not engaged. You don't want to give discretionary effort. You're not enjoying your job. You're not proud of where we go through. I say, if we don't have a great associate experience, there's no way we're going to have a great client experience. And then I take them through the six steps of the six focus areas that we have as a company saying, this is our responsibility to you is every day I think about what these six, how we're doing in these six areas to give you a great associate experience. And one of them is the tools, hardware, technology, and software that they need to be able to do their job. And uh, so that that just dovetails into everything we've been talking about for the last few minutes. And knowing um, how amazingly important the, the mission that you have to develop a phenomenal and maintain and grow a great culture, um, to care about your people first. And, you know, one of the things I was mentioning, I was speaking to Scott Simon recently, and I said, you know, one of the things that I think really sets you apart as an organization, and there are many, especially on the people side, but, you know, the fact that you believe in, I always felt like CMA will never put profit before people. And understanding every great business needs to be unapologetically profitable. It's yes. the only way we can maintain our commitments to our clients and our associates for the long term. But that being said, it will never be uh, superseded by doing something that is not in the best interest of the people, whether they're the clients or the associates. Is that fair? Definitely. I mean, we our three core values are people first, everyone wins, and always progressing forward. Never straight, but always forward. And uh, we also, though, talk to our associates very clearly about profit is not a bad word. Profit is a great word because it is, it is the measurement of how much value you are creating for your clients. And when we create great value, we deserve to make a good profit. When we make a good profit, we put more back into our ESOP, which is the stock that all of our associates own. 26%. 26%. It puts more back into their paychecks. And then we put more back into our community. And so that all ties back into this everyone wins core value of profit is a great thing. Profit helps us give back, give to them, grow the company. And you know, even down to when we talk about why we want to sell more cars, we know that the more profit we're making, the more cars we're putting on the road, we believe that a customer in our community is better off buying a vehicle from a CMA dealership and the independent used car lots around us, maybe some of our competitive dealers, certainly off a street purchase from an individual. They have technicians who are high quality technicians who are making sure that the vehicle that they're buying is um, not only a great vehicle, but that they have a team that's going to stand behind it 
uh, after they finish their purchase. And so all of it comes back to creating an everyone wins culture. And um, profit is a good word. It's the measurement of how much value we're creating. It's a, it's a beautiful way to put that. It's, it's really remarkable. The most admired companies in the world you know, are the most valuable companies in the world, right? I mean, you look at Amazon, or you look at Apple, or you look at companies like that, you know, who have long uh, captured the attention and the admiration of people on the public, you know, they are very, very profitable, first and foremost. If they're not, o- over a period of time, people start to lose their respect or admiration for that company. So it should make perfect sense that we, anybody in dealerships should be able, and the associates should be able to take great pride in being part of that uh, organization, that collective effort. But for some reason, people think profit's a bad word. But the way that you can put people over profits is when you think about profit being a good thing. The profit Mm -hmm. is, is a return for the value that your associates are creating. And that's what allows you to put people first. You don't have and a profit. All you're doing, yeah. If you don't have a profit, all you're doing is stressing about cash flow and trying to make it, and, and you can't focus on your people. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful analogy, you know, that to say, hey, you know, for any employee out there, you know, when when you're not profitable as the household, in other words, when a household doesn't have enough to pay their bills, is that a happy household? No. Are you able to do as much as you want? your kids or your community? No. Does it give you great confidence about the future? No. It's it's the same thing uh, for us, right, as an organization. So what about this everybody wins? You, You know, for you and your organization, it's not enough that just the company wins and we're profitable and, hey, everything's great, had a record year. You know, because you're an ESOP, literally CMA is putting their money where their mouth is. And because when CMA wins, um, 26%, over 25% of that profit is going to your employees who are are employee owners, number one. Number two, um, you, you believe equally in having a strong and productive, positive relationship with OEMs. When it, we're at a time when many, it seems like the level of distrust between manufacturers and their dealers and vice versa seems to be stronger than ever before. And you also believe in having an equally great relationship with your vendors, who I think it seems like you treat your vendors as partners and expect them to be partners, right. not just vendors that supply a service or a product. Can you talk to us about First of all, where did that come from and why is it important in CM, for, for CMA to have this all-in belief on a win-win scenario? Well, the, the one group that you left out were our customers or clients. They've got to be in every win-win circle too. Well, of and course. The, right? But, but I say that because I, you know, we all have been in this industry a long time and 10 and 20 years ago and more when I, our industry had a bad, I think a bad reputation. You know, they always say it was used car salespeople and lawyers and politicians were down at the bottom. And all of that began because there was a tension between customers and dealerships where one was winning and one wasn't. Either the dealership felt like the customer had squeezed them down to 
a negative gross and and the customer was winning and we just got screwed, but we had to do the deal to hit the OEM number that we had to hit. Or the customer felt like the dealership was winning and they got home and didn't feel like they got a good deal or the same deal as their neighbor got. And so there was this tension that created what was, I think, a very negative perception of our industry for many years. And so if if we focus on every bit of training that we do around an everyone wins culture, and we we train our teams to say the more questions you ask and the better relationship you build. Now, this is going with from us to our clients, but it's the same with our vendors and us and with our OEMs. The more questions we ask and really understand what this client is trying to achieve in their purchase, their lease, or the servicing of their vehicle. And, and then we present them with the best options to fit their needs. The client's winning because they're getting what they want. They're willing to pay us more and give us a bigger profit. The company's winning. The associate's winning because they're making more in their paycheck and their stock is going up. We then feel more confident and comfortable with our vendor partners and our OEMs. And we're, we're giving back in both ways. And we can talk about those relationships separately. We then give back more to our community. But it all starts with us having an everyone wins relationship with our customers. And so every bit of training we have to do has to be around in the finance office when you're talking to a customer. And we, if we really take the time and find out they have a set of 16-year-old twin boys who have lost two sets of keys on their car in the last three months, and we properly sell them key replacement, and they just moved into a new community that has all this new construction, they're probably going to need tire and wheel coverage. And we really get to know them and we present products that are the right fit for their needs. That's how that whole everyone wins circle begins. I I agree with you. And it's it's so interesting. You know, we the whole idea is not to sell products um, in an FI department, in my estimation. It's to enrich or improve the ownership experience. Right. And that's that's exactly what you you know, stated because for me sitting here as a client, we've all been in those situations where clearly somebody is trying to sell us something and it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. And and your natural reaction is to put your hands up and go, slow down. I know I don't need that. I don't need that. But when you really engage clients and you have a genuine and authentic interest in them and in the in beyond the transaction, so now you're talking about the difference between some dealers or some salesperson who are engaged in transactions for the purpose of rendering a commission because that's good for them. Instead of others like yourself, I was also speaking to David Gonzalez, who's the head of the number one Mercedes dealer for the last 30 something years. In I a listened row. to your podcast with him. It was very valuable. He's remarkable. And the organization is remarkable and very much, again, uh, we're, we're CMA worthy. Uh, they, they are as an organization for sure. But when you're talking about going all in on a genuine, authentic caring uh, for the person that's in front of you, that is about to make this tremendous investment, whatever it is, if it's a $10,000 car or if it's a $100,000 plus car, and rather than looking at it transactionally, be more focused on delivering a world-class experience. And then don't stop when they get into that business manager's office, F&I office. But at that point, really understand, how do you use the car? How long? I noticed you kept your last car six years. I noticed, like you're saying, and then provide them the opportunity to improve their ownership experience. I just think that's just... <clears throat> 
I think that's such a brilliant uh, approach to share with people, and I think it's lost. We we do. It's interesting in 1998-99, you know, everybody started shifting to the menu, and it was tremendously successful. We went from 900 bucks a copy roughly at that time to 1800 bucks a copy. And that's great from a financial outcome. But when you get so hyper-focused on just presenting the menu, which one do you want? Yeah. And that's all there is. It's a bit of an empty experience from a client's perspective. Well, you can tell when uh, a finance manager or a team really is is doing it in an everyone wins culture. When you look at it and you see different links in terms of service contracts and you see different ancillary products that are being offered and, and, and recommended and actually purchased. When you, you could have a great finance manager who's got great PVR, but if you look down, you see that they're selling every service contract at the same term. You're seeing the exact same ancillary product offered every time. And, and it almost looks cookie cutter. You know that they're, they're just good at closing on the menu. They're not really getting to know their client and making sure that we're offering the right things. The PBR doesn't tell the whole story. It's not even close. And speaking of that, I think it's astonishing and, and maybe a bit of a telltale sign to your point. When um, I read not too awful long ago that 90% of people who bought a car 12 months ago cannot tell you the name of who they bought it from. That's and, crushing. You know, in an industry where we seem to talk endlessly um, about uh, retaining our clients on the sales side, on the service side. And we all understand how that imp- how important it is. But, you know, you, you, sometimes it sounds like uh, a, a marketing thing or an empty narrative uh, when clearly if 90% of the people we sell cars to, if you call them up 12 months from now, hey, hope you're well, just checking in, want to make sure – that you don't need anything for your car. Um, you know, I would love to hear from you what your first impression, whatever it is you're saying. Right. But by the way, do you, um, who, who was it that sold you your car? If you hear, I don't know, I, in what world are you expecting to be able to get a referral from that person? Who are they going to refer them to? Uh, first of all, by the way, 85% of salespeople don't ask for referrals. Maybe those two are connected at the hip. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know. Maybe. David, this was so. What do you do to solve those things? You know, in in my world, I look at, they're not all prospects. We have suspects, prospects, customers, clients, advocates, and champions. How do we do a better job as dealers at creating advocates and champions rather than just putting another mark on a sales board that we sold another customer. So I'm going to start with like the most basic, simple thing that we found like seven or eight years ago when we didn't have consistent wearing of name tags across our organization. I would walk through a showroom and I'd chat with the customer like, oh, who are you working with today? And they'd be like, oh, the blonde guy over there. And I'm like, oh gosh, they've been here for three hours. And I tell our brand, our teams as we're you know requiring that they wear these, I said, there's three reasons we wear them. But the first one of the reasons is there becomes a point where a customer spent so much time with you that they're embarrassed to now ask you your name again. And so they're not going to. And how are they possibly going to refer customers to you if they can't remember your name? But it also goes for new associates. Someone might be with you a month, two months, and three months, and they get to a point where they're, they're like, well, I've been introduced to this guy 10 times. I'm not going to ask him his, 
his name again. So that's another reason we wear name tags and because it says owners just care more and we want them to remember they're an owner every morning when they put on their name tag. So it starts with our customers have to know our names when they're doing business with us in that moment. Like it has to start there, right? Once we get beyond that, I think there are a lot of retailers, a lot of groups who are uncomfortable with their sales associates branding themselves and creating their own personality or, you know, having their their all of their customers on a, a available via text or having private Facebook groups. And they're afraid that that sales associate's going to leave and go to another group and take their whole group of cust- their whole book of customers. And what our team has talked about is it's our responsibility to make sure our sales associates never want to leave. And if they want to leave, they're going to take their customers regardless, you know, whether we protect them by not allowing them to have these different ways of branding themselves. So we really encourage our sales associates to, we have some that have their own, a lot of them that have their own hashtags that, um, that some of them have actually created a picture thing behind them, like uh, talk with Tim or, um, uh, I love Lucy. Her name is Lucy, and she has like a TV thing around her. So there's some different things that they've done to brand themselves to help their customers remember them and to refer them. And so, when uh, one of the best examples, Keith Black, who's at our Chevrolet store, um, has his own private Facebook group that he puts every customer who's on social media, which is most of us. He's an older gentleman, but most of his customers are on there. Um, he puts them into the private Facebook group after they buy a car from him every month. He's doing a drawing or a giveaway to one of his customers. It could be something in our service department. It might be a local gift card to a restaurant. And then every every day, every couple of days, he's posting, oh, here's something new going on with Chevy, or here's a, a new customer that just joined us, or here's a new restaurant that just popped up in our community. So he's got, you know, I think 700 customers in there that he's he's connecting with them all the time. That's the sort of thing that we try to encourage and, and push our sales associates to do, because honestly, they don't want to sit in front of the CRM and just make phone calls and say, hey, just call to check in with you. How do we use technology, which is where you and I both started this conversation, to better connect in an authentic way that allows our, our customers, our clients to remember us when they're not in the market? We have another associate um, who's, oh, he does all of his sales through social media. And once a month, he just creates a video that goes out through his CRM to all of his customers with some sort of service special. And he's like, hey, just reminding you who, who I am and where, you know, where the dealership where your uh, car came from. Hey, this month's special is on a, a, a four-wheel alignment just for my customers. It's going to be 25% off, $69.95. Make sure you mention my name when you make your appointment. This sale, This service special is just for my customers this month. And it is just for his customers. He goes to the service manager every month. And he discusses, what can I do this month for my book of a thousand customers? So those are the sorts of things that I think in today's world, we need to do to connect with our customers and not just ask our sales associates to pick up the phone and say, hi. I I mean, some of those things that you just shared, um, everybody should be, everybody should be jumping on board. Um, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, you know, we all know that, if you have somebody who's a manager in our stores who has a fear of hiring somebody smarter than them or better than them, you have a problem, right? Because that person's thinking is completely uh, the opposite of, of what it should be. It should be, hey, everybody I hire 
needs to be smarter than me, better than me, and grow beyond me. Number one, they're going to make me look like a genius. Number two, they're going to allow me to be able to rise up on a macro level and go from being a manager to a leader. And number three, one of them may end up being having the ability to take my spot so I can go and move on. It's right. it's so it's so different. You know, the 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 way that you put that is uh is is absolutely something everybody should be doing. It's quite the opposite. If if I'm in today's world and I'm a Gen Z or a millennial, um and I'm it's either frowned upon or disallowed for me to brand myself. Why would why should I stay there? Honestly, in today's world, from their perspective, that's how they communicate. That's how they connect. And I was saying, you know, I found it so interesting. We used to all, you know, back in the day, you would write letters to each other. And then the phone came out and nobody was writing letters. And and somebody's mom and dad was saying, why don't you write a letter? But I don't know. I have this thing. Right? I, don't, I don't need to write a letter. Right. And then after that, it was chat. And then after that, it was texting. And then after that, it's DMs and it's TikTok or what, you know what I mean? No. But it's like, don't give me God. But, but for, for folks that are working in our stores, if we want to again attract young people, you're 100% right. And, and the other thing that's important about this people buy from people, not, not companies. Well, know, David, our industry like was built on entrepreneurs entrepreneurial spirit. That is what has, when you talked earlier about how awesome our industry is, that's what makes our industry unique. It is not cookie cutter. It is not big box retail where every store looks the same, does the same, people are the same, they're robots. I think back to, you know, back in the early 1900s when my grandfather was trying to figure out, a great grandfather was trying to figure out how to get in this business. It all starts with a really creative entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, at least for our group, we want our general managers to have their personality in their stores, their creative ideas. Each store has some things that are non-negotiables and are consistent, but there's also a lot that is unique about different stores and markets. And if that's what we want from our leaders, we have to start with hiring people as sales associates and service advisors and technicians who also have that creativity and entrepreneurial spirit. Not all of them have to or will. I mean, there's there's space for all different types in our industry. But if we ultimately want to grow leaders that are able to be entrepreneurs and creatively be the CEO of their dealerships, it has to start with letting them show that that energy and that creativity as um, as their first role in our company. And just just the things that you shared, like that person who who was self-actualizing and went to the service manager and said, hey, I got a group of a thousand clients here. What can I do for them that's special for them? I mean, what service manager is not in love with that salesperson, for God's sakes, rather than the typical, let's go out and do a transaction, you know, check, done, commission, received. And now it's almost like there's a whole different business behind that wall that I have nothing to do with. And I don't even feel a connection to. So I think that's brilliant. So what about in your mind, um, first of all, moving people forward? When did that become part of the CMA organization? So moving lives forward has been our mission since 2019. I would say it's always been the spirit of our organization. Um, But 
I actually was doing a coaching session with Danelle Delgado. I don't know if you know Danelle, sure. but um, back in 2019 and really- This is I don't win. Yes. And I was brainstorming with her about what I wanted our company to be and where we were going. And at that moment, we were branding the company under CMA. Prior to 2019, each individual dealership had a different name. There was no Carter Myers Automotive. There was no CMA branding. And for the first time, we were really trying to create from externally a CMA brand. And so that begs the question of why and, and who are we and what do we want to communicate and and why are, why do we do what we do? And so after a whole brainstorming session, it just like came out and it was so clear to me when the words were shared, moving lives forward is what we do. And it came from this conversation where Danelle listened to me for like two hours talk about what we do as a company and what what drives me and what has driven our company at that point for 95 years. And she said, Liza, she said, you're a car company. And I only heard you use the word cars like three times in two hours. And she kind of reiterated back to me everything I had talked about as far as uh, the people part of our company, both on the associate side, the customer side, the community side. And I, I won't go through the whole two hours, but she said, you're not in the car business. What I'm hearing you say is that you're here to move people's lives forward. And she started, kept on, I said, wait, wait, stop. Moving lives forward. That's what we do. First for our associates, it has to start there. It's about more than just a job when they come to CMA. And we won't go into all the details behind that, but then for our customers, it's about more than just buying or servicing a car. It's about understanding where they want to go in life and helping them get there. And then for our communities, it's about more than just a check. You know, car dealers give a lot of money out into our communities. But we say in order to really move lives forward in our community, it's not just about cutting a check to this nonprofit or that little league team. It's understanding what the needs are in our community. We give time, we give money, we create awareness around the needs in that in the community. We share their stories and we help bring other people together to collaborate, to help move the lives forward of those in need in our community. So that's what we do. That's our mission, moving lives forward. And we are blessed to be in an industry where transportation is so important in this country. And for people to get where they want to go in life, they have to have safe, reliable transportation. Some of them, it's passion about the type of transportation that they have that creates joy in their life. And it helps them not only get where they want to go, but go in a way that's exciting. So we are just incredibly fortunate to be in an industry that impacts everybody in this country, not just because it's a car, but because of where they want to go. Um, I, I love that. And I didn't know, I did, you know, I, I've met Danelle. Uh, we ended up at one of uh, Glenn Lundy's uh, 800% club events in Arizona. Uh, we were uh, speaking at, um, at that same event. And I had gotten to know her a bit on Clubhouse. And I, I love everything about her, about her story. She's just an incredibly uh, powerful um, human being, just a force of nature. And, you know, has ha had and has every reason she could have uh, when she got to that uh, fork in the road, um, health-wise, you know, to succumb, you know, or surrender, and instead she she rose above, and and she didn't stop there. And ever since then, she's been helping other people um, figure out things. So what what a cool story! I had no idea. So now that you you said that, and you kind of shared um, moving lives forward. 
you know, from the associate perspective, I, I go back to mentioning that this business, you can, anybody, please come uh, join, join the business. Uh, it's one of the greatest businesses in the world. I, I don't know of an industry that's created more millionaires or billionaires than this business. I don't know of an industry that has probably created more homeowners than any than this business. And yet we don't do a particularly great job. We we are in desperate need of a PR firm as an industry because we're not very good at bragging about ourselves or letting people know. And I it and it's fascinating to me every dealership that I'll find at least two or three people here where I am in Kansas City at this wonderful store. But every dealership has multiple stories of somebody who saw an ad for an entry-level position, eight, 10, 12 bucks an hour, um, didn't know if they should respond, ultimately responded, went in and interviewed, uh, got the job, and went from being whatever that position was, maybe it was front desk, reception, maybe it was BDC, maybe it was supporter valet, and they worked hard and took pride and um, and were able to get promoted either from an income perspective or ultimately into a different position. I see so many people, Eliza, that are today controllers who started out, you know, just take, you know, uh, re- receiving money, right? Yeah. Uh, sales managers, GSMs who started out on the front line service directors, you know, or even dealers that started out like Alex Flores, you know, working on the front. I mean, it's just a remark. It's incredible. And what can we do as dealers to do a better job of getting that story out and making certain that people know that they've got an incredible opportunity to join this, this amazing industry. And, and move their lives forward. So there, I wanna, there's three things that I, I want to say on this topic. The first one might be a little controversial or, or people may disagree with me. When, when I spoke earlier about that tension between the customer or the client and the dealership and everyone thinking that one's making something over on the other, I think that there's some nervousness in our industry or sometimes backlash when they talk about financially how well you can do in this industry, that customers hear that and think that they're getting then taken advantage of. For some reason, they don't think that when they're you know buying stuff from Amazon and they look at how or many doctors or attorneys, right? But for some reason, we've had that you know that negative perception or reputation, and so I think there's a there's a reason that we hold back talking about how financially lucrative this business can be because that sometimes means that customers think that we're taking advantage of them. We have to figure out how to share that story without it having backlash. And I know that there is the right way to do that, um, but we have to be thoughtful about it. Um, The second thing that I'll I'll share with all of the opportunities that you just mentioned and how we can improve, not just sharing our story, but improve the path and have it um, help the stories be, be told better We do have people that maybe don't have a whole lot of education come into our industry. We have people that we promote that have never had any sort of leadership development or personal development training. And our industry does a pretty poor job of that. And so we we take a lot of high performers and we promote them into leadership roles, but we don't teach them how to be a leader. 
Now, they might have some natural instincts, and we have some incredible leaders that have natural instincts and raw talent in that area, but we have a lot who don't. And there needs to be more opportunities within our industry to offer professional development as somebody's moving from a technician into a service manager or advisor, from a sales associate into a sales manager. We have things like NCM and NADA that teach them the hardware skills. They teach them you know, the nuts and bolts and the numbers behind how to run a service department, a parts department, a sales department, but helping people understand, you know, from a leadership perspective, something simple on how you look at the quadrant of importance, uh, important versus urgency and how to spend your time. How, how do you have a proper one-on-one and what does it mean to be a good coach? Those sorts of things are not, um, they're done more on an ad hoc. You learn from the person above you, Right. Um, I see that as a great need across our industry from a leadership development perspective. And if we have leaders who are more in tune with um, coaching and developing future talent, I also think they're going to be even better at telling their story and the stories that are happening in their dealership. I love what Paul and Kyle and Asodu are doing to tell these stories through their More Than Cars episodes. I think it's a really neat way to be able to share stories in dealerships. If anybody hasn't watched the first episode, it's it's out there. The second one, I think, is being debuted this week at a SoduCon, and there's going to be more. But that's exactly what they're doing, David. They're going into these dealerships, and they're sharing the story of that person who answered an ad and started as a sales associate and now is maybe a GSM or maybe just bought their first home or they uh, came over from a different country and now have this you know, really positive career in their life. So I love, I think uh, Paul and Kyle and Asodo are one of the great tools for sharing stories that isn't coming directly out of a dealership telling their story. But all of us, we can, we've got to use social media. We've got to use video. We've got to be willing to talk and involve ourselves in conferences that are not our industry. So often we just go to our own industry conferences, but how do we find opportunities to speak and contribute and be a part of in other industries to tell our story? people who might never have considered a career with us. So we've got to take the time and invest it outside of just auto. I agree. And, and, you know, there really is a tremendous opportunity to uplift people in our community. And I also think, by the way, we do have to make certain that the community within our dealership is representative of the community that, that where our dealerships are located. And, you know, um, Obviously, we're making some inroads uh, with DEI. We're making some inroads with women in automotive, but we are still far from where we need to be. And we also have to, that's the importance, I believe, of creating, I know you agree, of creating a world-class culture where it feels inclusive, it feels welcoming, it feels positive, it feels uplifting. And, you know, because uh, last time I looked in a Cox study, I think the average woman that comes in our industry is gone in less than three years. So bringing them a lot of reasons to contribute to that, you know, yeah. And bringing somebody in to have them leave in two or three years is not a whole lot better than not having them come in at all. So we just have more work to do. I agree with what Paul and Kyle is, uh, are doing. I, I think I may have even mentioned it to you, uh, before years ago that the concept was, no money down. You can come into this industry with no money down. Let's take those, create those vignettes like you see before somebody's doing a competition at the Olympics or before the American Idol, they show some background or, you know, America's Got Talent, one of those shows. 
it it humanizes the industry, but it also really shows people that anybody can come into this industry, apply themselves, and create an absolutely fantastic future. Yeah, um, and you do one of the full time positions that we created a couple years ago was for a talent acquisition specialist, better known as a recruiter. And uh, a lot of her time is around technicians, technician recruitment. It's probably 75% of her time. Uh, but what we did, all she doesn't just go to job fairs and she doesn't post ads. She actually goes out and meets with everybody from guidance counselors um, to uh, teachers and professors in the school because we didn't want someone who was a professional recruiter who knew how to post jobs and do job fairs. We wanted someone out there sharing our story. If you ever have the opportunity to meet Beth Lucchese, who's on our team, she is the best ambassador we could have for our company because she's so enthusiastic about CMA and she just goes and tells our story. You know, she's not out there doing the traditional recruiting. She's out there sharing the story. And we just got to keep getting those stories into places that are unexpected, um, that aren't looking for automotive as a career. So I, I got to jump into the speed round because I want to be respectful okay. of your time. But before I do, I want everybody to hear from you uh the the non-traditional i'd consider them non-traditional positions right so you have the head of talent acquisition you have somebody also who is who is in charge of associate experience right what's that title he's director of people and associate experience okay so i've got the director of people and experience i've got the director of talent acquisition i've got the director of client experience, right? Is that the right title? Yeah, her, her title is actually a senior manager of brand engagement. And that is a weird title. And we've actually started to change it a few times. But her role is to look at every touch point that a customer has with our company and understanding what our brand, how we're speaking to that customer. How is our brand engaging with them everywhere from how they make a service appointment to our reputation management on Google to how they're greeted uh, when they're calling the parts department. So she's got all the customer touch points. Okay, and then are there any other non-traditional positions that you have in the store? Well, to me, they all sound really normal and traditional. <laughs> no, they, I love them because they're, they're like, they are the future. People talk about, it's so funny. People love talking about the future of automotive and hypothecating. Oh, and it's going to have AI. Oh, there's going to be autonomous. Oh, there's, well, listen, let me tell you something, everybody. If if the future of automotive is exactly what Liza is talking about, because if you don't have that in your future, I don't think you need to worry so much about agency and autonomous or anything else. It always has started and ended with people. So is there any other really important positions that you somebody wouldn't find in most dealerships? Do you have a head of training? I think, I think we do have a head of training, um, manager of uh, corporate training and development. And we do have, I think more dealerships are creating this position, but we do have three people who are media and content creators slash videographers. We have three full-time people in those roles. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, on to the speed round. You ready? Sure. All right. Um, for you yourself, what drives you? Waking up every morning and making sure everybody in our company feels as lucky every morning to wake up as I do. I love that. Um, what keeps you up at night in the year 2023 as we uh, continue to move towards a bit of a, a transition or economic shift yet again in automotive and you hear about things yeah. that 
eventually coming. What keeps you up at night? Uh, affordability. Wow. I think you're, we're pricing ourselves out of what our customers can afford. And um, there's got to be a shift here, both on the used car and the new car side, because there's a major mismatch on what our, our clients can afford and what we what we have available to put on our lots. Um, I'll throw this out there uh, in just to try to do it in 60 seconds. But for anybody and everybody listening, to emphasize this point, um, in 2019, the average price car was 38000 and change. Today, it stands at forty eight and change. Uh, back then, the average interest rate was 3.85. Today, it stands north of 8. Back then, of the 38000 you paid for a car, 10.3% was offset with OEM incentives. Today, that number is 4.4%. The average insurance on a one-year annual policy was fourteen hundred and change. It's now north of two thousand to twenty-one fifty, and gas was two fifty-nine a gallon. It now stands at roughly three dollars and eighty-four cents a gallon. Which the last one people might go, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal translates in over sixty dollars a month. So ask any of your customers, would sixty dollars a month make a difference? All this means, by the way. When you look at the percentage of the population that earns a median household income, which is roughly 75000 because that's what it takes to afford a certain level of a car. But when you consider that most experts, financial experts and financial planners and retirement and everything else will tell you, even your bank, that 20%, 15 to 20% of your take-home pay is what should be paid on a car. We're, we've moved into very dangerous territory to your point, Liza, where we used to, in 2019, roughly 38 to 40% of the population could afford a median priced car. By the way, we had 12 cars under 20,000 bucks. Then today, zero. Today, we have 32 cars over 100,000 in MSRP. And today, we've gone from 38% being able to afford that car to 22%. We fully bifurcated the market where you have one demographic that could afford new cars. The other demographic is relegated to having to, to do used cars. And it doesn't yeah, even start. Really big things going on in our industry. And that that's actually what keeps me up the most at night. I it's such an immediate concern that that we're not addressing. I think I think we're likely to see, I've been predicting it all year, that the OEMs, while they've been incredibly slow, almost a snail's pace to come back into the game with OEM incentives and more compelling customer offerings with the continued rise of day supply. You know, we're up 60 to 90% depending on the month year over year, but our sales are only up somewhere between four and 18% in any given month. That Delta at three or four times the floor plan interest rate and what's going on with affordability doesn't bode well for them either. So I think our partners on the OEM side are likely to come back, thankfully. So let's shift two more questions. Let's go on that very happy side of life. What was your first car you ever owned? Um, a Nissan NX 2000, I think was the name of it, with T-tops. Very sporty. Very sporty. It was quite funny, and I did have an accident, not my fault, but two weeks after I got the car. Okay. And, Embarrassing. And- the second question may be part of this. Um, what is your go-to? If you're just, it's a beautiful day, 
you have a rare occasion to drive between stores or maybe you're even off um, and you jump into your car uh, and you put on music. <laughs> I they flip on the radio and now it's Spotify or, or Pandora. But what is Liza Borges's go-to driving song? Oh my gosh. I am the worst music person ever. One, I don't know the artists who sing any of the songs, or if I know the artists, I don't know the name of the song. And if you look at my playlist, it's all over the board from show tunes to country to classic rock to my daughter's like, I don't even know what you call music today. Whatever the stuff is that they listen to, ah, oh. um, to a whole bunch of Taylor Swift. So I am all over the board and it totally depends on my mood as to which one of those songs come on. But a couple that might be depending on the come mood, on. it yep. could be Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Wow. It could be Fearless by Taylor Swift. Wow. Okay. Or... It could be, and I'm trying to think of the name of the song. Um, it's been uh, induced by Snoop Dogg. Nope. Uh, made <laughs> Made for This by, is it Carrollton? I don't even know who it is. Anyway, those are just a few. But my playlist is hilarious. And you might even get a little bit of Rent show tunes from the uh, Broadway show Rent. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's uh, from 1996, one of the great plays of all time. Yes. No Day Like Today, Liza. Yes. Right? Absolutely. No Day Like Today. <laughs> And, and th- there is no day like today, everybody, because uh, we've all had the pleasure and honor of listening to you, Liza, and, and pour into us and really be able to share some real world, um, imp- highly impactful things that you do with the organization that, frankly, any and every organization can and should be doing uh, to make the most sustainable, viable, successful organization not just for the business, but for everybody in the business, uh, to your point, associates and clients. So thank you so much for spending your time with us. Appreciate it. It was a great hour. Love being with you always. We'll see you soon. Thank you. And for anybody anybody listening, um, I want to thank you again for taking the time. Please take the time to share this with anybody who will benefit. And I can't think of anybody who wouldn't from uh, Liza's words of wisdom. Thank you. And for also take the time to leave a review and subscribe. And I will look forward to seeing you next time on the David Spizak Show. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The David Spizak Show. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button and leave a rating wherever you're listening right now. I look forward to having you back in the room where it happens.